Welcome to today's Bible study with Pastor Josh Tice. The next time you're in Las Vegas, we'd love to meet you in person at Southern Hills. If you happen to watch us regularly, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel and consider sharing this video with a friend. You can support the ministries of Southern Hills by visiting southernhillslv.com and clicking the Give tab. Now, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn how the Bible is relevant in your life today. And you made it back to Southern Hills. Give yourselves a round of applause. You did it. You're here. You're ready to go to study the Word of God. And today we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number eight. And we're in a sermon series entitled Miracles, God in Action, week number two of a three-week sermon series. So it's a perfect day for you to show up at church. Now, I got to begin by telling you the title of the sermon. And it may seem a little bit, um, well, it may seem a little bit out of the blue but you'll understand it as I teach the sermon today. That today's sermon is entitled Hopeless at the Hostel. Hopeless at the Hostel. And more on that in just a moment. Anybody here ever stay in a hostel before, a a youth hostel? Raise your hand real high. Anybody ever stay in a youth hostel before? Okay, Uh, Christina, you stayed in a youth hostel. In, In what scenario, what place, where did you stay? Yell it out. In England. Okay, so you were in England and you stayed in a youth hostel. Very interesting. All right, very good. Were you, were you married at the time? Was not married at the time. And that makes sense. That makes sense. Somebody else, raise your hand and tell me, uh, where were you? Somebody over here I saw raised their hand. They're like, I'm not going to say it out loud. Yes, yes. In Switzerland. Okay, so in Switzerland. And was that before you were married? Yeah, okay, that makes sense. It makes sense. You didn't have children with you, did you? No, of course not. You wouldn't do that. Very good, very good. Anybody else? Anybody else? See, it makes sense. They were in England, single, no children, and, and, and in Switzerland, single, no children. Good. Uh, here's a few things you need to understand about a hostel that I did not know. A hostel is not a hotel. In a hotel, you rent the entire room. In a hostel, you rent the entire bed, and, and you buy them per bed. That's how it works. Second thing that you need to know about a hostel, it's different from a hotel, is that they're much cheaper. I mean, you're talking dirt cheap. And when I was planning out the plan, my trip with my family through the UK, we were going to do a, um, a road trip, get in the car and drive from place to place. And there was one place we want to stop at called Portree, 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 Scotland. It was an exciting location, something I'd wanted to see. And we, uh, we booked, uh, we tried to book a hotel here. Here the problem was, there's only a few hotels in the entire town, and they were extremely, um, how can I say this, more than I wanted to pay. And any other cheap dads out there, give me an amen. I found there was another place, it was called a youth traveling hostel. And I'm like, well, we're young, this'll be perfect. It'll be perfect for my 42-year-old self, my beautiful wife, and three teenagers as a family. Let's not rent a room. Let's rent five individual beds. And that simple, small decision led to a very hopeless situation. (laughs) Have you found yourself in a hopeless situation? Have you planned out something that suddenly did not go the way you 
had planned. Maybe right now your situation is not travel oriented. Maybe for you it's vocational or relational, or maybe for you it's the location of where you find yourself today. And somehow you have arrived at a hopeless moment in your life. And you're kind of not sure what to do next or where to go or if anybody knows or if anybody cares. Okay, all of that is to introduce this passage. You see, Luke chapter 8, verse 40 through 48, tells us the story of two hopeless people and one obvious solution. So who are these two hopeless people? One of them is a father named Jairus. The other is a woman who's been ill for 12 years. And I want you to look at the story. Hopeless situation, not of their own choosing. Look at verse 40 of chapter number 8. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Well, it seems like we're picking up in the middle of the story. If you're a Bible student, you're, you're wondering, okay, return from where? Does anybody remember last week we were talking about where Jesus went? He was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He was on the other side of the lake. And there he met a demon-possessed man, and he eradicated the demons from him, and the entire town came out. And they said, get away from us. We don't want you in our land. And Jesus went back into the boat and came over to the other side. Even though they didn't want Jesus on that side, when he came back, there were crowds ready for Jesus. Not everybody you meet in life is going to want Jesus. But those who want Jesus, Jesus gives himself to and that's what we see here. He comes to the other side, and if you're here today and you're like, man, I, I need help, Jesus gives himself to you. He comes to the other side, and he sees this great crowd waiting for him, and behold, what does it say? Behold, there was a man named Jairus, and he was the ruler of a synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. Several interesting things here. First, it tells us a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of a synagogue, meaning he was the local religious leader in that town. He would have been like a, a pastor of a local church. So I empathize, I understand what this guy's like. He's just, he's not a big shot nationally. Not everybody knows who he is. He's just a little pastor of a little church in a little town like I am. Very religious, loves his God, but also loves his family. Now, what's interesting is in all the stories of Jesus that we've been studying in the Gospel of Luke, most of the religious leaders don't like Jesus. But this religious leader is falling at Jesus' feet. I wonder what it is that happened in his life that put him in a situation to seek God. What was it? Well, the story tells us. Look at what happens. The Bible says in verse number 42, he begged him to come to his house for he had an only daughter who was about 12 years of age and she was dying. Well, now we know why he sought God. Now he know why he sought the miracle worker, Jesus Christ. His only daughter, 12 years old, I know what it is to have a 12-year-old daughter. My 13-year-old my daughter just came up here and she, she gave those announcements big and loud and strong. And that's my 13. I have a 16-year-old daughter. I remember. Many of you know what it is to have a daughter. And the protection you feel around this little girl. I, I got a call from a friend of mine in our church this week. And um, he said, hey, pastor, you got to pray. My, my, my granddaughter is in the hospital. I said, what happened? And he said, well, I, we don't know. She's not breathing. 
I said, oh my gosh. So I'm like, can I come down? And so I've known this family for many, many years and he's one of the deacons of the church and I rushed down to the hospital to see the family and, and his granddaughter, when I came into the room, his granddaughter, about two years old, sitting on the lap of her daddy, Jacob. You should see Jacob in this moment. Jacob looks like a powerful young man with a little tiny girl tubes going into her nose, little wires coming out. She had one of those braces on her arm to make sure that the needles that are inside of her and it's all taped up. And when I came in, she just, she, she, she wants to take it off. And why is this here? And she wants to take it off. And daddy kept saying, no, no, mm -mm, that needs to stay. It's okay. And it's interesting because I was just studying this passage about a father who cares so deeply for his daughter. And now I see a father here and she, he's just holding his little girl. He's got strength. He's got determination, but he's also got a tinge of sadness in his eyes. And so would any good father in protecting his little girl. And that's what Jairus is dealing with. We don't know exactly what Jairus' daughter is dying from, but she is dying. And he thinks to himself, well, I, I, I can't do anything. Nobody knows how to heal my daughter. But where's that miracle worker? Where'd he go? And then finally he finds out he's been on the other side of the lake and he's coming back and he rushes up to Jesus. He moves everybody out of the crowd and says, come on, man, you've got to come help my daughter. And Jesus agrees to come and help. And the Bible tells us what happens next. Jesus says, okay, I'm going to come. And by the way, how old was this girl? How old was, her? How old was she? 12 years old, 12 years old. And as Jesus went, the multitudes thronged him. Have you ever been inside of a crowd that was so crowded? People were jostling you back and forth. I mean, you, it was so thick with people. You could sense you could smell them. You can feel the crowd. And this is what Jesus is going through. He's trying to move like a celebrity through the paparazzi to just get through to go help this man's daughter. And as he's getting through, now a woman, verse 43, a new character is introduced in the story. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years. She has a blood disorder for 12 years. How many years did she have this blood disorder? Oh, that's interesting. Who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. She came from behind and touched the border of Jesus's garment. She didn't want to bother Jesus. She didn't want to stop him. She didn't need a, new bi a big Bible study for her. She just knew, I don't want to bother Jesus. I just want to touch the hem of his garment. Some of you are like that here. You're like, I don't need a big ordeal. I don't need everybody's attention. I just need to touch, a touch of Jesus's power. And immediately when she touched him, the blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? Jesus stops and says, who, who touched me? Now, let me ask you a question about Jesus. Do you think Jesus actually knew who touched her, yes or no? Well, sure, of course. He's asking a rhetorical question because he wants to have an interaction. So he says, who touched me? Now, do you have friends like Jesus had friends? Do you have friends that um, they answer rhetorical questions <laughs> embarrassingly for them and everybody else, Right? Jesus asked a rhetorical question, and guess who it was who speaks up to give the answer? Who was it? Yeah, Peter. 
Peter, Peter's fantastic. Peter likes to make sure anytime there is silence, he likes to insert stupidity. And some of you have friends just like Jesus has friends. So Peter jumps in. <laughs> Look, that's exactly what happens. Jesus jumps in. Immediately, the flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? And all denied it. But Peter, Peter spoke up and said, master, multitudes throng you and press against you. And you say, who touches me? And Jesus said, no, no, no. Somebody touched me. What he means, somebody touched me on purpose. Somebody knows what they were doing. And I perceived that power went out from me. Now, when the woman saw that she was not hidden any longer, so now the whole crowd has stopped, and the woman is back here in the crowd somewhere. She realizes that she's not getting away from this scenario. The crowd parts, and she comes trembling to Jesus. Notice how nervous she is, how scared she is, how intimidated by this man she is. And falling down before Jesus, she declared to him that the presence of all the people and the reason that she had touched him, how she was healed immediately. And then verse 48, he said unto her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is the story about two hopeless people one obvious solution. Now, to understand the story today, I'm going to give you three words that will help you categorize the story in your mind and make more sense of it for your life. We've already studied the story. Now, let's bring some practical application to your life. If you're ready for the practical application part of the sermon, give me an amen. All right, here are the words that I want us to study together. They're very simple. They all begin with the word D, letter D. Details, deleted, daughter. Details, deleted, daughter. Say it with me. Details, deleted, daughter. Say it again, say it again. Details, deleted, daughter. Let's hit that first word and hit it strong. Details. Here's my question. Why does the Bible tell us so many details about this woman? It does. I mean, there's a lot of details. Have you ever talked to somebody and they tell you about their medical issue? And you're like, TMI, no thank you. I don't need all of it. But we get a lot of information here. The details of her story are right here. Look at what it says in verse 43. A woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any of them. She had some kind of a disease. What was the disease? Most theologians and biblical historians that consult with physicians will tell us she probably had menorrhagia. Menorrhagia is a abnormal, prolonged daily menstruation. Instead of a woman arriving at her natural monthly cycle for a few days a month, that daily natural, that monthly natural cycle extends throughout the entirety of the month. A constant bleeding, week after week, month after month, and for this woman, year after year after year, it's extremely dangerous. And in very extreme cases today, the natural remedy is for you to meet with a doctor who will perform a hysterectomy so that there's no longer that need. But this poor woman is 1,800 years away from the first hysterectomy being performed in the UK. So what is she going to do? She needs a miracle. You have to understand the problem that she was facing. 
the physical weight of this pain that she was in on a daily basis, the emotional roller coaster she must have been struggling with. In consulting with my wife in this sermon uh, recently, I talked to her through this passage. She said, Josh, there's no way I can explain to you. You will never understand. <laughs> to which I said, TMI, you know, that's all I need to know. But can you imagine every day, every day, every day for, for years? It's very dangerous. It's not only very dangerous, it's extremely inconvenient. Imagine a day in the ancient world of antiquity where there are no modern conveniences of modern feminine hygiene products. Daily, daily, daily the pain. But not only the pain, the poverty. Because according to this, the Bible says, she had sought physicians to answer the problem, but she had spent her entire life savings to do so. Doctor after doctor after doctor promised, we got the answer. And they took the money and gave no answer. Now, I thank God we live in a day of modern science and modern physicians where we have a wonderful medical professionals who come to this church, and God has given you incredible ability to help. But those Christians who are our medical professionals would tell you, even now doctors and scientists don't have all the answers. But they will take as much money as you give them. True? True? Am I the only one who has friends and family who have at one point in their life had money and they have sought health and they have spent all of their wealth in order to get health and they still have neither at this point? That's where she is. Clearly at some point she was a woman of means. She was a woman of wealth. She had something. Now she doesn't have money and she doesn't have health. She's hopeless. Pain is there, the poverty is there, and that doesn't even mention the cultural implications that she was facing. The day and age which she lived in, you have to understand culturally, it was, um, she was under not only uh, daily law, governmental law, she was under what's called ceremonial law. And in this very religious society, if you were in some sort of a disease, like an issue of blood, what would happen is you would be considered unclean. Say the word, unclean. Unclean means that you had to self-quarantine. Not just for medical reasons, but also because we don't want to be near the unclean. It was true for the woman in natural uh, cycle throughout the month. Three days a month in a lone quarantine. When my wife and I were discussing, she said, I wouldn't mind three days in quarantine every month. How many of you say, that sounds like we should go back to the old way, right? And that's exactly what took place. But she didn't have three days a month. It was every day of the month, month after month. Can you imagine being in quarantine, not for a few weeks, not for a few months, but for 12 years, when you come out, people would push away from you. You would have to say, unclean, unclean unclean. Get away from me, unclean. Why? Because if another person in the society under that cultural law, if they touched her, they would be considered defiled and unclean. And they themselves would have to go into quarantine for three days and wash their clothes and in some instances even have to shave their head before they come out. 
This was a woman who had not been around people for a very long time. And she comes out of her quarantine and finds herself jostling in a crowd, I can imagine, putting a cloak over her head so that nobody knows who she is, so they won't boo her away into quarantine again. The cultural implications mean she was not even allowed to go to temple. She wasn't allowed to go to synagogue. She wasn't allowed to go to worship and study the word of God because she was unclean. She was considered defiled. If she was married, if she was married, it was against the law for her husband to have physical relations with her during this time. And in a society where a man could literally divorce his wife for burning the soup, what do you think the chances are her husband stayed with her for 12 years through this? Now she was alone, poverty-stricken, in pain. Nobody cared about her. These are the details. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus know who touched him, yes or no? Did Jesus know how long she had been ill? Yes or no? Did Jesus know the details of this woman's story? Yes or no? Yeah. Sometimes, you know what I think? I, I, I think some of us are in such a hopeless situation, we genuinely feel like not only does nobody know the details, nobody wants to know the details. Even your closest friend, you want to sit down and tell them all that you're facing, eventually they're going to look at their watch and be like, you know, okay, you, you're bumming me out. Do you ever feel like you have to put on a front, a, fa a mask, uh, put your face out there and just make sure that everybody just wants to be around you, but in reality, you feel like nobody knows nor do they want to know the details of your pain. This passage teaches us Jesus knows and wants to know the details. That's how God cares about you. And the first word that helps me understand the story is details. The second word that helps me understand the story is the word deleted. Say deleted. Say deleted. Look at what the passage says. What happened to this woman's illness? What happened to it? Luke chapter 8, verse 47. When uh, then she touched Jesus and she was healed immediately. So where did, the de where did the illness go? Where'd it go? That's a good question. And to really understand this point, I need a, a volunteer. Very good, Vinny. Good job. Give him a round of applause. Vinny volunteered quickly. Did you see how, now he didn't raise his hand, his eyes just went up, and I knew immediately it was Vinny uh, wanted to volunteer. Man, thank you. And Edwin, you did the same thing. Edwin, would you give him a round of applause? Edwin, these are the two, two of the guys I mentor, and come on up, right up here on the stage today. And today, to illustrate this point of how this actually works, we need two, two individuals. You go ahead and stand here, Vinny. Edwin, you come stand here. And, uh, and today, we're going to have um, this brother here, Edwin. Edwin's going to represent the holiness of Jesus Christ uh, because he's such a good man. Don't you see him as a good man? Say amen. amen. It's a good man represents the holiness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God uh, pouring over his head. And then we have another person here. <laughs> Vinny's gonna represent the, the hopelessness of humanity. Don't awe him, you don't know him. 
If you do, you, this would be, you would understand, this is the perfect metaphor for Vinny. We all know. Every stain of humanity, every sin of his personal life, I have a list, I'll read it to you later. Vinny is gonna represent the hopelessness of this woman's situation. Now, the reason this is important is because if you quickly read this story, you won't understand the metaphor and you won't understand the great significance that this passage actually is saying. When this woman reaches out and touches Jesus, does she make Jesus unclean, yes or no? No. No, everybody else was afraid to touch Jesus because if they, or excuse me, afraid to touch this woman because if they touched this woman, they would receive her uncleanness. But this woman reaches out and touches Jesus and is Jesus made unclean, yes or no? No, no. What happens is when this woman reaches out and touches Jesus, her uncleanness transfers to Jesus and Jesus deletes it, gone. Theologically, we call it the great exchange. As a human, you come to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to earth to die upon the cross for our sins. Now, what takes place at the cross is Jesus Christ takes your sin upon himself. He dies upon the cross to pay for your sin. Your hopelessness is poured out upon him. And when you repent of your sin and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, his righteousness is placed now upon you. The great exchange has taken place. Now God in heaven sees you as the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he sees your sin under his blood. That is what's taken place in your life theologically. And what does Jesus Christ do with your sickness, with your illness, with your pain, with your sorrow, with your discomfort, with all of your sin, the sin that should drag you to hell and keep you in sadness and depression every day? He takes that sin and he deletes it from your life. This is why theology matters. Now we stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He himself retains his own righteousness and has deleted all of your sin. Let's give these two a round of applause. Thank you, fellas. Thank you. My righteous man and my unrighteous, now clean uh, young man. Very good. Christian, to see your sin as gone and now free entrance into heaven is what this story is all about. If you've never repented of your sin and received Christ as your savior, you do not have to have your sin defile you. You do not have to remain unclean. You say, but I'm just too dirty to come before God. I'm just too unclean. If I touch Jesus, I'm so bad, he'll probably get messed up. Oh friend, no, he will transfer his holiness to you. He will take all of your sin and eradicate it, gone completely. This is what we see the word of God teach. And this story summarized in three words. Number one, do you remember what the first word was? What was it? Details. He knows the details. Number two, what was the second word? Deleted. Deleted. What was the third word? Does anybody remember? Daughter. daughter. I'm going to talk about daughter, and then we're going to get out of here. The reason I really like this story, because essentially the story is about a father who loves his daughter. And maybe more than you realize. I mean, isn't that what it says in verse number 42, Jairus? 
had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. I know what it is to have a little girl. It's way better than having a little boy, trust me. <laughs> no, but it is, I, I gotta tell you. Lorenzo, you got three little boys, right? No, no daughters. I got to tell you what it's like. Okay, so like for a boy, like for a boy, my, my, my son could have a pair of shoes. His toes could be sticking out because they're so old. And I'd be like, good, you're building character. Go get a job, hippie. Like if you want shoes, you're seven years old. Mow a lawn, right? But my daughters, my daughters, like they're just like, I would like some shoes. And you're like, here's the debit card. Whatever you want, just do. It's fine. My son's over there, you know, like eating a chip. Because <laughs> that's the way it is, daughter versus son. You just, it's, it's different. My, 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 because as a father, you want to you provide for your daughter. You, you do. You want to play with them. I remember, my, I remember bringing my baby girls home. When, when, when I brought my son home, I felt like, wow, I, was, I had some responsibility. When I brought my daughter home, I felt like I have to be a man. I, I have to be a man for this girl. I have to take care of her. Because a good father wants to provide and protect his daughters. I, I like to play with my daughters. My, my daughter, when she was three years old, she's 16 now, this, this other one, Savannah, she, she liked to play at night and I would come in to say good night and she'd like, let's sing a song. She wanted it for months. She wanted to sing a Disney song together every, and, and you don't want to hear me sing, but she did. And so she'd, we'd put on the CD and, and a lot of times she picked um, a whole new world with, you know, a whole new world from Aladdin, a whole new, it's not going to happen, right? And, um, and we, had a, we had a carpet like this in her room, a beautiful little carpet with all the, you know, flourishes and stuff. And it kind of reminded her of the carpet on, on Aladdin. And, and she would say, let's sit down. And so we'd sit down together and cross our legs. And, and she'd pull up the front of the carpet. She'd pull up the carpet, Daddy. Pull up the carpet. And, and we'd pull up the carpet. And we would sing the song. And she'd say, you be Aladdin and I'll be Jasmine. It worked perfect because she had those little Jasmine um, nighttime, you know, those little nightgowns, you know. And it worked perfect because I had my Aladdin PJs on. And so it, it's not true. It's not true. And um, she would sit here, and I would sit here, and we'd sing a whole new world, and I would sing Jasmine, uh, Aladdin, not Jasmine, and she would sing Jasmine, and at the end, she would always stand up, you know. And I always felt like such a man in front of this little girl. She would stand up, and I would be sitting there, and she would take my head, and she'd kiss it on the, on the forehead and say, I'm going night now, and she'd crawl in bed. and <sighs> It's nothing like that play with them and you, you provide for them, you protect them. Man, I, as a daddy, a good daddy, when you see your daughter is going to be hurt, man, something inside of you changes. Bruce Banner turns into the Hulk and you don't want to... <laughs> it's true, like we were, we were together um, as a family on this trip and we were in a courtyard and we were about to eat some food. I don't even remember what city it was, but we were in a courtyard and we, we got some bread and some, some ice cream or something. And we're sitting there and it's a beautiful day and we're just eating, having fun. And um, it was ice cream because one of the girls start taking the little parts of her cone and she started feeding the birds like a little girl does, you know? They're just feeding the birds and everybody's having a good time. And there was this well-dressed 
old man who is sitting right here. Nice little hat and a cane and just very well dressed and very proper, very, very proper man. And as she fed them, some birds and pigeons started coming around. Well, he did not like this at all. And he said it. He actually stood up and said, hey, 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 what are you, what are you doing? Look at all these pigeons. Look at what you're doing to the park. And start yelling at my daughters in front of me. And something happened. <laughs> it began here and it started coming out. And I, my arm came up and I walked up and I said, well, aren't you a nice grumpy old man? I said, that's why you're sitting in a park all alone by yourself. Why don't you sit down, shut your mouth, and take your next pill? <laughs> Something like this. <laughs> say, Pastor, did you say any bad words? <laughs> there was something coming up inside of me, you know? Have you ever had one of those moments where you thought you thought it, but you actually said what you thought you thought? He sat down, I looked back, and all my family was like, dang. I'm like, nobody messes with my daughters, you know. Let's go eat some protein shakes, you know. I felt like a man. I felt like a man. Why? Because a good dad wants to do whatever they can possibly do to protect and provide and play with their daughters. And I know what some of my sisters are thinking in this room. You're thinking to yourself, I wish I had a dad like Josh. I wish I had a dad like Jairus who did whatever he possibly could do to beat through a crowd just to bring Jesus to his daughter. And what I'm trying to tell you today is you actually do. Because the end of the story, we find out it's not actually about Jairus and his daughter. It's about God and his daughter. That's why Jesus in verse 48 looks down at the woman after she's healed and says, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go and live in peace. He calls her daughter. Now, I read that this week on Monday, and I thought, well, Jesus must call lots of people daughter, and I started researching it. And did you know this is the only time in all of the Bible Jesus refers to a single individual as daughter? The story is about a father who's doing everything he possibly can to get Jesus to his daughter, and you think it's about Jairus, but it's not. You think it's about a 12-year-old little girl? It's not. Her story ends next week. This story is about a girl who is hopeless, a young woman who has nobody, who thinks nobody cares about her details, who feels absolutely depleted as if she's never going to be clean again, and her life's sins are washed away. They're deleted, and he, she is called daughter by the very Son of God. So what I want to say to you is this. My sister specifically to you. You might think you're in a hopeless situation and no one cares. And I'm here to tell you, he's doing everything he possibly can to get Jesus to you. We arrived 
at Portree. That's the little town with the hostel. We got there at 12.30 in the morning. It was two hours later than I thought we were going to be there. In fact, I thought we were going to be there much earlier, but our GPS stopped working, and several things happened along the way. So when we pulled into this tiny little town, we thought, I thought to myself, okay, no problem. We'll head right over to the hostel. I'm sure there'll be a big sign that says, Hostel for Josh, and it'll be right there. Not at all. We arrived in this town, and it was ghostly silent. Nobody in sight. And we traveled up and down those little streets looking. No signs, no way for us to find out where this place was. We went to a building complex and thought it was there. It wasn't. We went down the road and went to a place that was unpaved. We almost got our car stuck in the mud. We noticed there was one location that was open, a little light in a little bar. We pulled up to the bar. Heather looked at me and said, I'll go in and check it out. I said, good luck. That's the type of protector I am. <laughs> she walked inside, came out, and she said, they said it's up the hill. I said, anything specific? She said, they were gone. I said, okay, let's go up. We walked up the hill, and for the next half hour, we're searching door to door for our hostel. No clue. Now I'm sitting in the car. My three little, my two little girls and my, my wife, Jonathan is searching all the back alleyways. And I'm like, that's it. We're just going to sleep here. This is our hostel. And suddenly, Jonathan comes from around the corner down a dark alleyway. And he waves to us. Hey, hey, hey. And I look up and suddenly all of the mm, angst sprang into hope. I said, what is it? He said, I found it. It's here. It's here. All today's sermon is, is simple. It's to the one who's sitting in your car in the middle of the night and you're absolutely hopeless. I'm your little brother and I'm waving at you saying, hey, 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 I found it. It's here. It, it's here. Let's pray. Father, there are men and women in this room who need a miracle. They feel like they've arrived at a hopeless place, a hopeless place not of their choosing, not even of their making, but they need you now. They need you in this moment. And oh God, I pray that they would find what they need, not in what the world has to offer, but they would find it at the feet of Jesus Christ, just as this woman did and just as Jairus did. Oh God, break through our hard hearts and tell us how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for watching Josh Tice's most recent Bible sermon. If you think of someone who may enjoy this one, go ahead and send it or post it today. If you're ever in Las Vegas on Sunday, we'd love for you to stop by Southern Hills and see us in person. If you benefit from this virtual ministry, we'd also like to encourage you to support our gospel efforts by sending a donation to the ministries of Southern Hills. You can do so by visiting southernhillslv.com and clicking the Give tab.